Here's something new to worry about. Navigation systems depend on measurement of magnetic forces around the globe, and the satellites that take the measurements are about to age out. But the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is on it with a special funding program called the MagQuest Challenge. Here with what it's all about, NGA's World Magnetic Model Program Manager, Mike Pinicia. Mr. Pinicia, good to have you on. Hey, glad to be here. There's a lot to understand here. Explain to us, first of all, what this whole magnetic measurement map of the world is all about. And it goes back some time, doesn't it? Yeah, so the United States got into the magnetic mapping game on around the year 1905. And before that, it had been something that, you know, the British had been doing. But basically, you know, it all boils down to being able to navigate with a compass. Your compass will point to the magnetic North Pole, which unfortunately for all of us is a constantly moving point. The true North Pole is just a fixed point. If you picture a globe, the top of your globe goes through you know, a set point, you don't have to update your globe every couple of years and, and move the North Pole. It's a fixed point, uh, but the magnetic North Pole wiggles around. So the difference between where your compass is pointing and where North actually is, is a constantly changing angle. Uh, that angle is called declination. What NGA does is we produce this world magnetic model with uh, help from NOAA and uh, the British Geological Survey. Uh, so it's an international program, which basically tells you where everywhere you are on Earth, this declination angle so that you can properly navigate. Right. I guess for a ship, an inch off when it leaves port could end up miles off by the time it gets where it's going because of this declination angle. Right. Small errors over large distances uh, create big problems. <laughs> okay. And so the satellites now that are taking these measurements, and does this get baked into the GPS system, or how does it relate to that, by the way? So, you know, if you're using your, your GPS software on your cell phone. The GPS satellites can pinpoint exactly where you are, but it can't tell you what direction you're facing. Your phone actually uses a compass to determine, okay, am I looking north? Am I looking east? What direction am I facing? And actually the world magnetic model that NGA produces is built into your personal cell phone. So every single person you know that's driving around right now using a, a navigation app is using the world magnetic model right now. And I imagine ships then have special instruments that tell them where they are relative to the magnetic true north that they need to navigate by? Exactly. Uh, you know, every airplane, every ship has got the WMM built into, into their software. So the issue then is that the European satellites that are taking the measurements and calculating these angles are about to age out of space. Is that correct? So NGA is stepping in, and what are you doing about that problem? Sure. So the current system that collects this magnetic data is called the Swarm Satellite. It's actually a constellation of satellites put up by the Europeans in 2013. Um, so you can see satellites, unfortunately, don't last forever. We're already you know, almost 10 years in. That puts, you know, puts, puts a problem. Obviously, the first question is, hey, Europeans, are you going to do a follow-on? And they had said, no, we're not planning on doing a, a follow-on system. So that fell to NGA to say, okay, this is potentially a problem if we don't have a new collection system. And that spawned this MagQuest challenge. We didn't start with, okay, we need someone to build us a satellite. That wasn't where we started. We started with, what, what is the best way to collect this needed geomagnetic data? And that first phase of MagQuest was literally an idea phase. Send us your ideas. And we got all sorts of crazy ideas. We did have, of course, some satellite submissions, but we had people with drones or, or sea buoys or ground stations 
or airplanes. And, and someone even submitted a, an idea of putting magnetometers, which is the sensor that we need to collect this information on, on carrier pigeons and flying them around. But when the dust all settled and we got through uh, where we are now, which is end, end of phase three, we just kicked off phase four. What ended up floating to the surface were, were small CubeSats. So we have three teams, each with a, with a different CubeSat competing in MagQuest Phase 4. We're speaking with Mike Paniccia. He's the World Magnetic Model Program Manager at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So you ended up finding that the best possible solution as a follow-on is something nevertheless launched into space. I'm just curious, why not buoys? Since ships were doing it accurately in 1905, it seems like buoys are already everywhere. Or is mm-hmm. it because they're not out in the middle of the ocean, for example? Is that part of the problem? Right. So there actually is already a ground network on land of various you know, magnetometer sensors called the Intermagnet Coalition. Um, Who knew? But, uh, that, yes, that covers ground. It doesn't cover ocean. So, okay, if you add in sea buoys... You're always in competition with a satellite that will fly over everywhere on the entire Earth multiple times over and over again. So trying to, you know, you could do it with an airplane. That's actually what the U.S. Navy did from the 1950s to the 1990s through a program called Project Magnet. They flew airplanes, but, you know, the cost of a pilot and fuel and constantly flying is just immediately dwarfed by a satellite, an unmanned satellite that's just sitting there constantly collecting data. So CubeSats, a particular company proposed this, and do they get a grant to do this? Do they get a contract to do this? How does the program manifest itself to get these CubeSats, which are, what, tiny little satellites launched into, what, near-Earth orbit, or where do they, how high are they? Yeah, low-Earth orbit. Uh, with a specific orientation that has them travel over every spot on Earth. But basically, th- this is this is where the genius of doing a prize challenge comes in. This MagQuest prize challenge. It's almost like a like a reality show where people compete and then the winner gets a bunch of money. So in our cases, you know, we had multiple winners in multiple phases. But where we are right now is that there's three companies: a British company by the name of IOTA, a U.S. company by the name of Spire, and a university, uh, the University of Colorado at Boulder. Are the three participants in MagQuest Phase 4 all submitting their individual CubeSat designs, which I won't go into too much detail on because they're still proprietary and it's still a competition. But at the end of, of Phase 4, which is broken up into some sub-phases, 4A, 4B, 4C, the winner you know, of, of Phase 4 will get a prize, a monetary prize. The exact dollar amount still TBD. But it'll be in you know in the order of, of a mil- millions of dollars by the end of, of this multi-year phase. And from there, we, we hope, NGA hopes to enter a, a data buy agreement. So where the company will be responsible for owning and operating the satellite, but NGA just buys the magnetic data from them. So they will then presumably build these CubeSats that are the winning entries. And by the way, these are about the size of a bread box. I mean, a CubeSat is something you can hold in your hands, right? Yeah, exactly. So they will then have to seek a commercial launch partner to get them up there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, some of that NGA may help for at least the first, the very first uh, CubeSat. The prototype will be part of Phase 4C. And so ideally, by the end of Phase 4C, all three of these companies will have a CubeSat flying, and then we pick the winner based on the best data quality, because that's really what this is all about. It's getting the data that we need. Yes, from then on out, CubeSat, you know, their lifetimes are, will vary between the three companies, but you know, on the order of two to five years at most, 
uh, we would need to re- keep relaunching. Got it. And so I guess in between, you could keep improving the designs of the CubeSats for the next round. And how many I, will it take to cover the world? Are they going to test one CubeSat to begin with? But it sounds like it might take dozens to cover the whole Earth. So because the satellite's constantly moving, we don't need all the, the entire Earth's data captured every second. So we can have one, one satellite just sort of flying around, orbiting the Earth over and over. That's okay. Of course, the issue being that if it breaks down, then you have nothing. So what we'll probably end up doing is you know launch it every, hypothetically, every two years, even though the lifetime is three years, so that there's overlap, so that in case there's you know a, a sensor failure or something happens on launch, we don't have any major gaps in data. And the revenue will be federal money to pay for the data on the ongoing basis. And does the federal government or NGA make that data available to anyone that needs the declination and the magnetic shape of the Earth? Yes. So the magnetic model and the products from the data have always been free and they'll always continue to be free because it's a, that's a product coming from the federal government. We're still, it's still TBD as to whether or not the raw data will be. The Europeans in their current model do give it away for free. That would be something we would like to do, but, uh, you know, that's going to depend on contract negotiations. And just a wild card question here. Does China take advantage of this data, for example, or do they have their own CubeSats or some other system? So China has their own satellite. It's not a CubeSat. It's the sort of old school, traditional style, big honking satellite that's got a bunch of sensors on it, one of which happens to be a magnetometer, which is sort of what Swarm is. So, you know, what we're doing by by turning this into a CubeSat is innovating for the future. It's cheaper. And it, if, if, if we can get a CubeSat to work, um, the cost savings over decades would be, would be high. Um, but I don't know if China actually uses the WMM or if they have an internal thing, but they definitely have their own satellite because they like to brag about it. Sure. And so the CubeSat fly-off, if you will, of the three companies, when will they launch? Hypothetically, you know, phase 4A will run until 2023. Phase 4B, which is, again, building a ground prototype, will go for another two years, about 2025. So we're looking at 26, 27 for the actual launch and and phase 4C, where we start to assess the data and declare a winner. Mike Paniccia is the World Magnetic Model Program Manager at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six 
actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.